Hey there, I'm Zen Hess, and you're listening to Currents in Religion, a new podcast being brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. Do you know someone who, while they're eating lunch, starts thinking about dinner? This is how the Gospel of Luke portrays Jesus. He's almost always on his way to or on his way from a meal. And these stories about eating, about food, about culture, these stories give us insight into ancient cultural practices. They give us details about food production and distribution. They give us details about the social dynamics of meals and the need for hospitality. But do these stories only give us historical insights? How might these stories communicate something about how early Christian communities thought about sharing meals theologically? And broadening our horizon from the ancient world to the present, how might these stories nourish the Christian imagination to think about food, to think about sharing meals, and to think about home and the world in which we live? Dr. Matthew Crosman joins us today to discuss questions like these, which are the subject of The Hunger for Home, a new Baylor Press book that Matt co-authored with Dr. Miroslav Wolf. Matt is Associate Research Scholar and Director of the Life Worth Living program at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. It was a pleasure speaking with him, and I think you'll find our conversation thought-provoking. But I should say, if you're like me, you might find that all the talk about food leaves you feeling a bit hungry yourself. So grab a snack and enjoy this conversation with Matt Crosman. Dr. Matt Crosman, thank you for joining us on Currents and Religion. Thanks, Zen, for having me. So your book, Hunger for Home, with Miroslav Volf, released uh, summer 2022. It's, it's still new. It's still fresh. Could you just give me a kind of overview of what the book's about and, and what you're trying to do with the book? Yeah. You know, this, this book really came out of... Uh, a couple, a series of scripture studies. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's to study scripture um, in small communities. I feel like we like learn things when we're doing, you know, sort of small group Bible study that we don't learn other ways. Um, and and so this this book really came out of a a, a Bible study in uh, our local church here in, in New Haven, um, and then also at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, where Miroslav is my senior colleague, and. You know, we so we sort of we we really honestly came into this like sort of like eyes wide open, just like ready to be surprised. Um, and I suppose you know, in many ways, we're not the first to to notice that Luke is full of meals, right? Um, but we were struck again and again by the ways um, that what Luke had to say about meals, what the teachings that Jesus is giving about meals, the ways that that inter- intersected with. Um, a broader theological theme that um, Miroslav and I and our colleague Ryan McAnally Linz and some others at the Center for Faith and Culture have been thinking about for quite a while, which is this theme of home. Hmm. So really what we're 
what we've sort of stumbled into in this book um, is a way of of thinking about um, uh, meals as sites of of nourishing mutual encounter between people and places and the God who created them all that sort of prefigure the um, eschatological, the final um, feast, um, which is one of uh, Jesus's favorite ways of talking about the kingdom of God um, in, in Luke. So every meal that we have somehow becomes this opportunity actually to uh, lean into this ultimate sort of picture of, of life um, summed up in uh, uh, the world become the world finding its way home in becoming the home of God. Right. So, so your title, you, you kind of sum up um, in the book saying the hunger for home is, this is a quote, the hunger for home is return and advent intertwined. It is memory and imagination restoration and transformation, creation and consummation. I just, I mean, that seems like such a, a, an appropriate reading for the gospel of Luke and and the way that um, these things all are situated in both a a forward looking and backward looking and, and uh, redemptive uh, way of thinking about it. And so I'm excited uh, in our conversation to hear a little bit more about meals, but, but let's, slow down and, and get to some of what the meals are made of. You, you all are focusing not just on the act of eating, but on food. So what do you think that the, the story of Luke and, and some of the stories that you're working with within, within Luke, what do they have to teach us about food? Hmm. One of the first um, places that food sort of shows up as a theme in the gospel of Luke and we take up early in the book is Jesus' encounter with the with the tempter in in the wilderness? Um, Jesus is fasting for forty days, and uh, one of the temptations is is uh, as a temptation to the invites him uh, dares him to turn the stones into bread to to uh, quench his hunger, and. Jesus, of course, responds famously with the words of Deuteronomy, uh, the human does not live by bread alone. Right. And leaves off there in the citation of scripture. But I take it that we, as Luke's audience, um, are supposed to be able to fill in the rest, uh, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from uh, the mouth of the Lord. And and so it feels like for food in in Luke is this, well, we, we sort of get, get thrown this sort of uh, false choice right at the beginning of the gospel mm. in, the, in the mouth of the devil. So we should expect sure. something uh, at most sort of half true. Um, and, and that is this false choice. Is it going to be bread or is it going to be the word of the Lord? <laughs> Um, and I take it that Jesus's response is, uh, you know, Deuteronomy is not saying that the human lives without bread. Right. Neither is Jesus' response to say the human lives without bread. Um, instead, the claim is that not not by bread alone. We are, our hunger is met not by uh, our true human hunger is not met by bread that is merely bread. Right. Um, our true hunger is met in bread that is always more than bread, more than just bread, because it is bread that we understand to have 
issued from the mouth of the Lord, a good gift of our heavenly father who delights to give good gifts. And, and so, so food becomes this sort of site of contestation about what is the world? Hmm. Is, is the world a threat to fidelity to God? Is the world maybe even something to be preferred to God? Or is the world this site of encounter between God and God's creatures? And this, of course, is where um, Luke eventually wants to, to, to lead us. And that sort of solves this false choice that the devil sets up. And I think a false choice that we see still to this day in our, in our culture, plenty of, of voices in our world want to commend bread alone right. um, and certain sorts of, uh, you know, sort of knee-jerk knee spiritual reactions, maybe even some of our own at times, want to push back and, and say maybe even in the extreme, eh, who needs, who needs bread at all? We have the, we have the word of the Lord. Um, but, but, but Jesus is inviting us, Luke is inviting us into uh, an understanding of, of bread and by extension meals, and by extension the whole of creation as this sort of site of encounter between God and God's creatures. Yeah, that's such an interesting way that that food becomes um, not just a symbol um, of the connection between heaven and earth, we might say, or between between God and those whom God has made and all that which God has made, Um, but but it's a point of contact it seems. Mm-hmm. So so one of the things I'm remembering from your book um, was the reading that you gave of of Jesus being um Jesus getting in trouble for for breaking the Sabbath customs and and he relates back to David um and and part of the way that you end up reading that story is that Jesus wants them to recognize that that all of creation uh and and the places where you touch creation um, are places of encounter. Could you say just a little bit more about, about how that works out, that kind of yeah. place of encounter in all of creation and what maybe are some of the implications yeah. of, of that? Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, this has been something that I really feel like I've, um, like the Lord has been helping me, encouraging me to think more about and reflect on more uh, during, during the pandemic, um, where place suddenly became so salient because That's our right. worlds got so small all of a sudden, right? Um, those of us who maybe were used to doing a fair bit of travel, that suddenly disappeared. And some of us were privileged to have our worlds get as small as, as our apartments or our houses because right. we were able to even do our work <laughs> from home. Um, right. Others still had to venture out to do do work, but but home became this sort of central place. But the place itself became, you know, if, if there's a sort of global imagination of some sort of human ideal, some aspiration that we might be global citizens where place sure. is sort of arbitrary now and we are just citizens of the world. Um, I think the I think the last two and a half years have really given the the lie to that and, and even suggested to us, I think, as we suggest in the book, that there's something about that globality, sure. <laughs> that, that sort of like world citizenship that actually is, uh, would, would, would entail a certain sort of diminishment of our humanity to, to be alienated from place. And so what, what we find in the, in the gospel of Luke is that, um, there's, there's this, I mean, because at first, maybe what I've said so far makes a lot of in, in, intuitive sense about meals. Of course, yeah, there are encounters between us and, and certainly us and one another, right? So right. humans amongst themselves, um, 
okay, all right, we, and we can be pious about it. And so then they become encounters between us and and, and God who, who, who created us. Um, maybe we can even be so pious as to extend to uh, the, the, the creatures, um, plant or animal that sure. we consume when we eat. Right. Um, but also, but also what's present on our, on our plates. Um, and I think there's a growing awareness of this, but what's pre- part of what's present on our plates are the places from which the food has come. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I, when I, when I, when I sit down, down for a meal quite often, like in a certain sense, like it is true. The whole world is on my plate because we're so used to many of us these days going to grocery stores and buying produce that, you know, the two items on our, there are probably two items on our plate that came from 10,000 miles away from each other. Right. Um, which is probably not as it ought to be, but, but this is our, our, our world. The places are actually so so a, a a meal is not just a place of of encounter between uh, human beings and and their creator but also the places and and what Jesus is doing in that in that scene where he and his disciples are sort of gleaning in the fields um he is as we suggest in that in that reading of that story when he defends their actions um on this, on the basis of this appeal to the life of David, he is suggesting not only that, of course, he is in some sense a, a Davidic Messiah, but he's a he is David at a particular point in David's life. He is the anointed. That's what a Messiah means. Sure. He's the anointed one, but he's the anointed but not yet enthroned Messiah. And and what does David do at that at that phase of his life? Well, he travels around the Judean countryside and, yeah. and, and, and and through Israel, and he does battle with the enemies of God. And I take it when we start to see that, oh, that's what Jesus is doing. He's 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 traveling around the Judean countryside. He is doing battle with the enemies of God, which in this case are not Philistines or Amalekites. They are unclean spirits and. Uh, and, 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 and spirits that cause disease and all, all of these sorts of things. But all of that is oriented toward, um, in a certain sense, a, a cleansing of the land, a preparation of the land, a declaration of a year of jubilee, which was not only a declaration of freedom and release for, uh, for, uh, for those who had become enslaved or those who had lost their ancestral, ancestral lands, but a declaration of release for the land itself. Hmm. As the land itself wouldn't be worked in that sort of way. And said for, for that in that Jubilee cycle, the land itself just gives what it naturally produces. And the expectation right. is that that itself will be enough to sustain the people, which is sort of about restoring us to a relationship with the place that God has created and put us to, to recognize God's ever-present nourishment um, in these geographies themselves um and so anyway so i i i know i've gone on uh, gone on a a while about this but this has been so so powerful for me personally especially in this season as i said where place became so small and so particular um to think about what does it what does it mean to think about the place that i am the history of this place um, what god has been up to in, in, in this place for centuries and indeed millennia You are listening to a conversation with Matt Crosman, co-author of the book, The Hunger for Home, with Miroslav Wolf, published by Baylor University Press, here on Currents in Religion. 
I'm reminded of as you talk about the the way that the pandemic caused you to reevaluate place. Um, you talk about home, uh, mm-hmm. hunger for home. That's that's a, mm-hmm. what this book is about, and that the meal, in a sense, enacts a, a rehoming. What does it mean to be rehomed, and yeah. how are we unhomed? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this is a, a huge question and one that has occupied our attention for years now at the Center for Faith and Culture and will continue to, I dare say, uh, for a number of years to come. So uh, we acknowledge at the end of this book that in a certain sense, while we thought we were just sort of doing some scripture study, uh, at the end of the day, we have ended up writing a book that sort of fits within a larger theological project, much of which has to do with the articulation of home. Um, but a, a couple of a couple of, of short things that can be said. Uh, let me refer back again to the pandemic. Um, you know, the pandemic was was this period of time in which the salience of home was was elevated. Home was utterly central to our experience. I mean, how many of us started up home projects of one mm. or another? Because once we were confined to our homes, there was something about it that wasn't quite as we wanted it to be, and 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 whatnot, right? Um, but so home became home was everything. But yet home was less than it ought to be (laughs) because home was mostly a refuge, which is one thing a home should be, right? But but home was refuge only, um, especially if you think about those first few months. Um, Again, whether we were holed up there all the time or venturing out into the world and scurrying back, home was primarily a a refuge, even a fortress. Um, It is sort of keep what was dangerous out in the world to keep that out in the world. And yet home has fundamentally, I think, also a function about welcome and invitation and hospitality. And for Jesus, who, let us remember, more or less had no home during his uh, three years of ministry, Mary and Martha's home was maybe the closest he had. Um, For for him, home is fundamentally about welcome. It's fundamentally about about invitation. Now, I think what we're invited to in part is some sort of refuge, place of safety and protection and whatnot. So I don't want to suggest, you know, a baby out with the bathwater with that. But I think much of our sort of many of our money, uh, this one uh, really powerful way that right now our homes have been unhomed is the ways that they have become fortresses. And that's Mm. not just the pandemic. I think we could probably talk about social trends going back at least as far as the post-war, which I mean post-World War II, sort of um, the ideal of the American dream yeah. and the suburban castle, you know. That each, seems right. Each, each man a king of his own castle, et cetera, et cetera. There are all sorts of troubles with that with that sort of ideal. Um, but one of them is this sort of I- idea of, of the American home as this, as this fortress um, and a loss of the sort of permeability of home and the, and, the, and the sort of mission of home as a place of welcome and invitation and expansive circles, concentric circles of belonging. Yeah. And, and I think that's what we see again and again in the ministry of Jesus, um, homes being... You know, the homes that he invites himself into, like in the case of Zacchaeus, the homes that he is welcomed into, the homes that he teaches about, right? How should you, there's so much, Jesus is constantly giving advice about um, how you should host a dinner party, who you should invite and how yeah. how you should seat people and you know, how invitations should go out, all of this stuff. He's very concerned actually about home as a place of welcome, as a place of invitation. I think because ultimately one of his best images he has for the kingdom of God, the very center of his proclamation is 
is a feast. God is, is, is a God of invitation, a God of welcome. This is Jesus's uh, mission is to, is to issue invitations for the heavenly banquet. Um, and, and what, and what that is, is a sort of rehoming um, of, of a world that has in many ways um, sort of uh, lost its original sort of homemaking vocation. Right. And so what Jesus is coming and doing is, is demonstrating a, 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 that rehoming vocation. And then of course, inviting us into that mission as well. Yeah. And, and so part of that ends up being uh, you, you all look at the way that Jesus um, talks about who should be invited. He yeah. really talks about uh, what they ate yeah. Uh, what what was served? It's not like us taking pictures of the the great filet mignon that we have on our plate or whatever, and posting it to Instagram. That's that's where our emphasis often lies. But instead, Jesus tends to focus on who's there, how they're treated. So tell yes. us a little bit more about the maybe ethical um, yeah. exhortation that comes yeah. for us, especially in in the modern West with with. Uh, often, not always often, more privileged than people have had throughout the history of the world mm. to make our homes places of invitation and, and who yeah. gets invited. What is that? Yeah. What does the gospel of Luke call us to do in that way? Well, Luke, of course, has a particular emphasis on Jesus's concern for the poor. And so one of the, the sort of key um, uh axes of invitation that that Jesus is thinking about uh, and talking about consistently in the um, in the gospel is uh, our, our rich and poor eating together. Hmm. One of the most you know sort of heart-wrenching stories that Jesus tells one of the parables is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a wonderful inversion that we don't know the rich man's name, but Lazarus's hmm. name we know, right? And this rich man is in a profoundly unhomed home. Mm -hmm. How do we know this? Because he's dining alone. I mean, we, as far as we can tell, right? He's, yeah. he's, he's eating these sumptuous feasts every day, um, but is very much like our Instagram habits. Yeah. Um, sumptuous in every way that matters less. <laughs> and yeah. absolutely, and in deep relational poverty, yeah. While out, just outside his gate is a would-be dinner guest, the perfect guest, right? The the guest that yeah. Jesus that Jesus commends. Invite people who can't pay you back, right? This is in a Greco-Roman context where where dinner invitations are constantly sort of playing these sort of games of patronage. You know, how can I you know sort of gain honor for myself by you know bestowing gifts on others, or how can I invite others who might later bestow gifts upon me? And instead, he says, no, invite people who can't invite you back. Um, and, and Lazarus would have been exactly this sort of dinner, dinner yeah. guest. And the rich man misses this opportunity. And ironically, at the end of the day, it seems that it is Lazarus who finds his home in the bosom of Abraham, as, as the text says, um, and the, and the rich man who's, who's without a home. And, and, and that moment, I think really brings to mind this, this other parable that Jesus tells about the the unjust steward or the, uh, uh, this, this guy who, you know, is keeping accounts for, for his boss, his boss has a bunch of people who owe him money. 
yeah, we don't know why the steward gets fired, but it, he seems to have habits of being generous with other people's money. So that might be a, a reason that he's getting fired. Yeah, possibly. Any, he's he's getting he's getting fired, and he has this, his instinct. You know, before I get fired, I'm going to go quickly to each of my boss's debtors, and I'm gonna I'm gonna reduce their debts. Um, you know, compound my sins <laughs> before my employer. But the, the employer kind of, you know, surprise twist at the end commends him. Why? Because he has figured out how to how to make friends with unrighteous mammon, mammon um, yeah. with unrighteous money. Um, you know, spoiler alert, there is no righteous money. Uh, I've, I've looked everywhere. I cannot <laughs> find a clean dollar. Um, all the dollars are wrapped up in, in, in unjust systems in one way or another. But this guy has figured out how to make some something of value, something of eternal value out of something really transitory. Right. And I take it, this is the, and and why? Because someday he says, uh, we, we might, we might uh, make these friends so that someday we might be welcomed into heavenly homes. Mm -hmm. And so again, home, home is what's at stake. And, and so the, the image I take it is if we put these two parables together is of the poor who who have homes. I mean, yeah. go back to the Magnificat, right? God is on the side of, of, of the poor. Um, the poor who will have heavenly homes into whose, whose homes we need to be welcomed. And I speak here as someone who identifies uh, uh, on the rich side of this divide. Um, and I take it Jesus' Jesus's thought is, why don't we begin, if, if our ultimate destiny is to be at home with one another in these relationships of mutual belonging, why don't we practice here? Um, And can we not, those of us who have access to wealth, can we use it, can we leverage it for something that will last, Uh, namely relationships and in particular um, building bridges and building relationships uh, with the poor so that the rich and the poor might dine together um, at our table? Um, And that, I say, I'm not sure we've gotten much closer to that being a regular practice around our tables than uh, Jesus' original hearers, original hearers were 2,000 years ago. Our our tables are, in our homes, our tables are pretty, uh, usually in my house, it's one class um, around around the table. Um, And so that's sort of vision of an eschatological meal. You know, the Corinthian church, we know. The Corinthian church... Uh, apparently uh, was taking steps in this direction. Now yeah. they were, th- that caused a whole other set of problems that Paul had to deal with. Um, but, but the fact they, that they had those problems shows that they had taken the daring step of for the Lord's Supper every week when they would have that meal together, they had rich and poor dining dining together. And that is, I take it, a sign of the kingdom. Yeah, they at least tried. We're trying. They did. Yeah. yeah. So Matt, you you direct something called the Life Worth Living Initiative uh, at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. I'm imagining that the content of this book uh, overlaps with some of the things that you're working with students on uh, at the Life Worth Living Initiative. Could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're up to and what what that work entails? Sure. Yeah. You know, the Life Worth Living program, we uh, it's, it's largely um, at Yale. It's an undergraduate teaching uh, program. So uh, I teach courses for undergraduates in Yale College. So that's a very pluralistic environment. Vast majority of my students um, have no particular attachment to um, to biblical texts. Um, most of them actually have no particular connection to a religious tradition. Um, okay. uh, their grandparents often 
often had sure. had had a connection, but even um, you know, even mom and dad, you know, have have only memories often of, of connections to religious traditions. And so, well, what we're trying to do in in that in those courses, we're trying to we're trying to invite students wherever we're coming, wherever they're coming from, because some of them are do have profound Christian, sure. profound Muslim, profound Jewish, profound Buddhist or Hindu faith. Um, others are coming from other 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 places. No matter who they are, we think it's a human question. This question about the shape of flourishing life. This question about what is it that really makes life most worth living. We're saying, look, that's that's a human question. So how can we tackle that question? How can we try to answer that question mm-hmm. individually? But how can we together as a community learn to ask that question better and learn to like uh, sort of hone our own answers? Yeah. Um, and so we're reading, you know, my in my fall class right now that I'm teaching, you know, we spend three weeks in in sort of Confucius and Mencius and Jushi and reading in the sort of Chinese philosophical traditions. We spend another three weeks and. Christianity is sort of Augustinian Christian trajectory, you know, from the Gospels to Augustine to Willie James Jennings and sort of like thinking about questions of and ultimately that course is driving it. What kind of person do you want to become and how is your college education going to help you become that person? Um, And our hunch is that ultimately we answer those that kind of question it's above our pay grade. We tend to answer those questions sort of in light of and in dialogue with rich traditions, whether they're cultural or philosophical or religious. All to say, um, you're, you're right. These themes of home often are, uh, uh, they, they come up. Um, yeah. if, if you talk to folks who are, whether they're in, um, you know, in uh, student services or their mental health professionals on our campuses, or you talk to the deans of various sorts, you talk to the students themselves. One of the, one of the fundamental um, sort of concerns and desires for, for young people these days is belonging. Yeah. We, we want to belong and home is fundamentally a place of belonging. Um, how do we belong to one another? How do we know that we belong? And how do we, especially, you know, as more and more sort of ecological consciousness is raised, which I take to be a, 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 a really good and important thing that's happening among our young people. When you put all those questions together, they're wanting to know how, not just how do I belong in my dorm room? <laughs> how yeah. do I belong here at this school? How do I belong in, in my national context, whether that's the United States or somewhere else, how do I belong? What does it mean to belong within this crazy huge world? How, what does it mean to belong as a human animal in the broad ecological uh, context? All of those questions, I think ultimately are questions of home. Mm. Um, You know, that, that Oikos route at the beginning of economics, at the beginning of ecology, um, these are pointing us to, Homes that are much bigger than the the, the apartments or houses that we live in, um, but are the, the 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 broader homed and unhomed structures um, in in which we live our lives. And I think young people have um, have lots of concerns about the homes that we are handing on to them, um, mm-hmm. and lots of hope and vision for rehoming and sort of creating new new sorts of homes um, in which they and others might might belong. Yeah. Well, those are important questions, and I'm glad that the students over at Yale have someone like you uh, to be working through them with. Thank you uh, for your time today, Dr. Matt Krosman and Miroslav Wolf. 
uh, have written Hunger for Home. It's out now on Baylor Press. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, thank you so much to Dr. Matt Crosman for making some time to talk with us about his new book with Miroslav Wolf. The book is called The Hunger for Home, and it was published this summer by Baylor University Press. And now I'm going to kick things over to Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, who is going to introduce you to another Baylor Press author. You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Jean Barton, Assistant Professor of Occupational Therapy and Theological Ethics at Duke University, and also author of Becoming the Baptized Body, Disability and the Practice of Christian Community. Sarah, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for becoming the baptized body? What's the big idea? Thanks so much, Dave, for having me on. So at the heart of my book, Becoming the Baptized Body, is a conviction that theologies of disability need to be deeply responsive to the lived experiences of disabled people in contemporary faith communities. This conviction underscores the book's central argument that the perspectives of disabled Christians can and should inform, shape, challenge, and expand our Christian theologies and our practices of baptism to enliven not only theological dialogues that we might have on baptism, but really to also support avenues for participation in baptismal practices and help folks embrace baptismal identity amongst all Christians, either with or without disabilities. And I think my book's central conviction is related to amplifying experiences of disabled Christians, and that shapes both its content as well as its approach. So in terms of content, it focuses on core Christian practices that people with intellectual disabilities have been excluded from or even denied within church settings. These are things like accessing a Sunday school classroom or a Christian formation offering, not being able to come into a sanctuary space, participating in Holy Communion, and of course, being baptized, the central topic of the book. So instead of focusing on common themes related to intellectual disability in existing work in Christian theology and ethics, themes like friendship or God's image or hospitality or something like inclusion, I explore how baptismal stories and baptismal identities of disabled Christians challenge, expand, and enrich how we think about this constitutive practice of our faith being baptized into Jesus's body. And in taking seriously perspectives of disabled Christians, particularly those with intellectual disabilities, This also means that the shape of my book's methodology prioritized collaborative and inclusive research. So I drew upon streams of thought and practice from ethnographic theology, and that allowed me to partner with disabled Christians through interviews and participant observation and worship together. And this approach to doing theology brought forth three core themes within the book. First, 
the central importance of belonging to Jesus in our theologies and practices of baptism. Second, our responsibility to have imagination around and support for diverse avenues for embodied participation in baptismal practices among disabled Christians and non-disabled Christians. And then finally, the critical importance of communities in affirming baptismal identity and recognizing the gifts of ministry that are bestowed on all the baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I think baptismal belonging is the work of God in the church today and the church past and the church future. In Becoming the Baptized Body, my book with Baylor invites readers to partner with God in affirming this complex and holy work of belonging alongside and led by disabled Christians for the edification and empowerment of all the baptized. Mm. Wonderful. It's an exciting book, an important book, and we are uh, grateful to have partnered with you on it. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your elevator speech with us. Thanks, Steve. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press, and my guest today has been Dr. Sarah Jean Barton, author of Becoming the Baptized Body, Disability, and the Practice of Christian Community, now available from Baylor University Press. Hey there, it's Zen again. Hey, I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this episode. I know there are a ton of other things that you could be listening to, and so it means a lot that you've chosen to listen to Currents in Religion today. Um, And I hope that this episode uh, sparked your interest in some way or gave you an insight that you didn't have before. And if that's the case, it would be awesome if you might share it with some other people who you think would also enjoy it. We're still a new podcast, and so we're trying to find ways to help people know that we're out there. Um, And as always, uh, we'd welcome you to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and to engage with us on Twitter at C-I-R Baylor. Until next time, take care, friends.